This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to Mitch, who is co-founder of Three Springs Land and Livestock, which is a regenerative ranch with a mission to create resilient communities through healthy and productive land. We're going to be talking everything regenerative ag from the life of the animals to the health of the soil. So let's dive in. I hope you're ready to go deep with us. We're getting real. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today is very exciting. We have our first fully in-person podcast. Yes, sir. So myself, Ryan, we're here with Mitch Dumkey. How's it going, Mitch? Good. Good. It's good to be here. It's good to meet you, meet you Ryan, and it's good to see you again, Tristan. Yeah, it's it's really exciting because Mitch is a regenerative you know, rancher, producer in the works, newly transitioned over from the tech industry. So yep. we're going to get into that. But yeah, founder of Three Springs Land and Livestock here in Utah, which is really exciting. I have personally tried his regeneratively raised broilers, chicken, and can confirm they're delicious. So (laughs) Good. Here we are. Um, Why don't we dive into your backstory a little bit? Because I I only know some of the nuggets, Uh and I'm I'm excited to hear more. (laughs) So I know a little bit. It was a little vegan. It was a little in the tech space. Yeah, Yeah, there's there's a little bit of everything there. So hopefully we can just meet everyone's needs. So uh, yeah, it started off with, you know, I've always been an environmentalist. That's just kind of how I found myself when I was in the fraternity system. I convinced everyone to transition to LED light bulbs so that they could save more money on thirsty Thursdays. You know, I, I was always trying to find the angle to figure out how to motivate people to help with the environment in whatever way motivated them. So I was in the tech world. I was trying to follow tech companies that I felt like had social missions associated with them. The company I was at was trying their best to do that in a good way. And in that process, I started the climate action group there. I got involved with the UN. The UN brought a conference to Salt Lake, the Civil Society Conference. And while I was there, they were talking about environmental stuff. And people kept talking about meat and meat and meat and some reports about meat. And then Vox Media was talking about meat. And there's a report on how bad that was for the environment. And anyway, I decided to stop eating meat. Fast forward, just kind of being done with the, the tech industry a little bit. Um, I was also talking to my next door neighbor and best friend growing up. And he said, he offered me some of his elk meat. I told him I was been a vegetarian for like a year and a half. And, and he's like, dude, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, I just, I'm trying to do my part for the planet. And he's like, yeah, okay. But you know, not all beef is bad. And I'm like, I, I honestly thought he was out to lunch. This is where I was on a high horse. I thought I had like the more information we all kind of go through these like known knowns, known unknowns, and just what, where we are in our journey. Um, and I'm like, I'll send you a video. And he said, no, I'll send you a video. And after that, it, it kind of changed my perspective on what beef actually is in that, like such a generic term of beef is really can be so versatile and being used or abused in all sorts of ways. So we kept going and uh, we, we thought this was interesting. We nerded out a little bit more and he ran across a realtor who was showing him a house. And for some reason that realtor said like, yeah, I'm a certified accredited professional at the Savory Institute. Um, I'm not sure if 
listeners here would know what the Savory Institute is, but it's an amazing international institution that educates on holistic land practices. Um, regenerative is sort of sometimes a, another word for holistic management. And so uh, he dropped that knowledge while J- my partner, James and friend had that knowledge. So we all kind of came together and we're like, holy crap, you are educated in regenerative agricultural practices. We are trying to figure this out. Maybe we can do something. So we kept chatting and uh, McKinley is this third partner, the one who's accredited and he posted on Facebook, Hey, we want to try this out. Does anyone have land? And sure enough, we had a great land owner said, yeah, come on over. So we're running our ranch on that land now. I'll stop there. I don't know if uh, that's, that's how we got into the idea of a ranch, but there's plenty of little ju- nugs to jump into on that, I guess. No, that's good. I, I'd love to get into the nitty gritty details because like yeah. I was talking about with you, Mitch, before we started recording was I had pitched to my family. I think it was about a year or so ago when me and Tristan first started talking and I found out he was local um, and he was talking about bison. I was like, oh man, bison are pretty cool. And I was into bison meat and all this stuff. And I was joking around with my girlfriend's family like, man, we should just run up and get out of here, move to Wyoming, find <laughs> some land and start a bison ranch. Yeah. But it's it's much more difficult than than our aspiration seems, especially to have a successful ranch. The more you look into it, the more daunting it is. So I'd love to know sort of you had that antithesis of, of why you wanted to do it. Sure. But I'm sure as you started looking into it more, the reality of it probably seemed pretty daunting. And I wanted to know sort of like, the mental space you were in going into it and how you made that transition and how you've gotten to where you are now. Yeah. Yeah. That we've had a lot of people reach out saying like, love what you're doing. I want to learn because I want to do it later. And it's just, it, it was wild, especially in the last two years. Like I'm like, you're only six months behind us. Like you're not, you're, you're, there's, there's more mental barrier than there probably is a lot of other barriers. Um, other than land, I would say land is probably the greatest barrier to, to figuring out how to, to do more of this kind of any kind of ranching regenerative or not just like if you want to become a homesteader or anything like that um i think what's the most overwhelming part is how much information is out there and what we found was helpful um was a couple things one mckinley our third partner grew up on a ranch so he had just the fundamental familiarity not a lot of first-hand knowledge but just familiarity with just just animal husbandry and what it looks like to manage a cow, to brand a cow, to like no cow cycle or whatever it is, just the life cycle of a cow. So like that was helpful. So I think for us, we came together as three partners for a couple of reasons. Like we had different skill sets. Um, I had a background in human center design and product management and tech companies. James had a background in accounting and finance. McKinley has a background in and being a realtor, but really, you know, and also living and loving the land and being in that space for his whole life. It was, uh, this really just soft skill that he had that he probably didn't realize he had. I, I think what, what worked for us was that when we found land and you need a, you need a willing person who is patient enough to let you do something on their land. I think the unfortunate timing of like people wanting to go grow their own food has also come up at the same time. I'm looking at Tristan's hat. It says Big Sky Montana. It, it, it tied in with Yellowstone. Everyone was able to sit on their butt during COVID and start watching Yellowstone. And people got just super jacked on the idea of like having open space. And 
whether or not being productive with that open space, like it jacked up land value, like significantly. So in, in where we operate, I'd say in the last four years, land value has gone from maybe $14,000 an acre to $110,000 an acre. And, you know, and so that becomes even hard for people who want to like homestead their land, let alone, you know, we're running on 60 acres of land. So, uh, land was a huge thing to try to figure out. Leasing is the way to go. If you want to do any kind of larger land, like scale land management. Um, I feel like I'm just talking about land. I want to get back to your question. Cause I feel like you, you want to get nitty gritty and I kind of yeah. keep going on these paths, but well, no, I think, I yeah. think it's a good point to dive into because so many people think they need to buy land. Like they yeah. think they have to own it. Like they don't understand, um, that leasing is an option and it's actually like almost the best option. Yes. Plus you're saying all these, you know, people from the cities who have a lot of money who just started watching Yellowstone. <laughs> now they're buying these large ranches or large plots of land yeah. and they're not doing anything with them. They so don't know there's what even do, yeah. more opportunity. And I know my friends have tweeted about like statistics of like the amount of land. It's like 300 million acres or more will change hands by 2030 also because a lot of landowners are extremely old yeah. and their families don't want to continue, you know, the tradition of farming or ranching. And there's just a whole slew of things going into like leasing land being extremely affordable um, under the right circumstances, I think. Yeah, there's there's a great book. We actually just book club called Land, Livestock and Life. And it's by a guy named Alan Nation. It's a really great listener read um, because he he talks about how that land used to be valued based on its productivity. And in the eighties that flipped and productivity was no longer about like agricultural production or livestock production It's purely just on land value and highest and best use. And that really changed things. So it would have been value, you know, in the seventies, eighties, go buy some land and it would be, it would be valued based on its productivity, which agriculturally could be feasible. That's it's out of the books now. So yeah, there's, um, there, there's just better options. So, and he talks a lot about that argument of leasing land. If anyone wants to, check out an amazing uh land leasing rancher uh greg judy mm -hmm. is a guy on youtube he missouri has, right yeah or yeah and he's just got these lo-fi youtube videos where he's just pretty much filling himself in the field but uh it, it's just he leases all of his land pretty much and that's i think that's the way to go in the future honestly and but these these landowners that you know it's yeah they want to put their man they want to put their money somewhere so um, how do you how would you go about like to someone who has no idea like to even start, like, how would you recommend they, they find someone, find a landowner and start knocking on doors? Like, is there a repository? Like <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard crazy stories of all the above. So I'm curious, you know, how did you find your landowner and how yeah. would you maybe do it? Differently? So we found our landowner on Facebook, just a, it, it was on a, a community uh, information page on Facebook. So people can just kind of just post about general events and conversations. It's, you know, the Camas Valley is a valley of, I don't even know, 5,000 people max, well, probably 3,000. So it's a small community. And um, so it's manageable to have a community page like that. And it feels like the posts are meaningful and respectful. Anyway, so we did it that way, but we've actually also done things like, you know, you can always search whatever county you're in and look at the county parcel ID map. There's things like MapRite or Onyx that are these different apps that will, you can just literally be in your neighborhood and look at who the parcel owner is. Sometimes there's addresses for contact information, but they always often have a door and you can knock on doors, you know, um, I don't know if it's helpful to, 
I, I was a, an LDS missionary. So I'm like, I don't know. I, I'm not afraid of knocking a door. I've knocked a lot of doors. <laughs> and so, and I was preaching that good word. And now I feel like I'm just knocking on doors, preaching a different good word. So like, I just, to me, I'm like, Hey, do you need help with your land? And if you are going into a land lease and you want, um, you have your set of goals, but the biggest thing, the advice I have is that you need to know their context and you have to respect their context and try to find shared context and shared values. Because if you go in thinking, sweet, we got this lease, we're going to do whatever the heck we want on it. That's not going to go well because their priorities could be different. They still might want to manage some of their land or they might want to develop it in 10 years. So you need to understand like you're not going to change their mind on what they do with their land. And so, you know, sometimes the one-year lease makes sense, but look for someone who's willing to let you run land for the long term. Five years could be good, 10 years, um, because it's going to take you a couple years just to get the land to start responding to your practices. Anyway, yeah. So uh, along the way, I'm sure you've experienced quite a few roadblocks mm -hmm. or bumps. Yeah. What, what were some of those that may have been expected roadblocks, but what were some that you didn't expect and just didn't see coming out? You know, I would say we're fortunate that we're not, we're not the first ones to try to pave this path in Utah. Um, we're, I still feel like Utah is pretty far behind in terms of regenerative practices, but there are a couple great shops like Argyle Acres and supporters like Red Acre Center that really helped the Utah market um, amongst others. But I, I would say some of the biggest roadblocks was just um, logistics and weather. Um, you know, we, we had cattle first, but then we decided like to cash flow this business. We needed something that turns over faster. So we did chickens and, uh, just, just the, the logistics that are required to figure out how often to feed them. And you're taking care of a bunch of like dogs or cats. I don't know what your metaphor is. And so I think, I think understanding that you become dependent on nature and you, and you're not in control was actually probably one of the biggest barriers, I would say. We we really have been fortunate with good mentors, but I'm coming from a tech background and product management and working with developers. What do you do when there's a bug? Well, you bifurcate, you you know, you do a git bisector, you do something to try to figure out what is or isn't working in this code and you debug it and you fix it. So you have this false sense of like, I know what I'm doing and I can fix this. We can debug this and get a new version out. When it comes to nature, like you don't have that luxury. You, you actually are dependent on this thing that we still don't fully comprehend that is sentient. And you, you have to just trust that it will respond appropriately and trust that your practices are going to do that. So I would say, maybe it sounds cliche. I don't know, but like, I would say the biggest barrier is like the mental block of like knowing that you can't do everything and that you have to trust this unseen process that happens underneath the soil. That's, that's honestly where I've like, and then, and then like to see that a year later is pretty magical when you kind of like are stoked that you trusted that instinct. Yeah. And I feel like the variety too. I mean, it's what the snowiest winter in 40 years. So you picked a good time to start. But a, but a year ago, everyone was saying it was one of the worst droughts on record, you know, yeah. three years in a row and all this stuff. So we've, we've been through pretty wild little. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the moral of the story is like you can have like your expected, you know, weather <laughs> outcomes, but the variance is, is so large, especially like in an area like Utah or yeah. Wyoming, Colorado, Montana, Idaho, where, you know, the temperatures can vary tremendously. The precipitation can, the storms, and that's something 
you might think you know, but it could always be different or worse. Yeah, yeah and a word that I love that I, I hear get thrown around and I think is underappreciated is resiliency when it comes to these agricultural practices. And and I think you hear about like being independent in your food systems. And I think that's good, but but along with independence comes resiliency and that you can actually handle these stress tests that, that come to you, whether it's a 900 inch year of snow versus like, you know, the opposite end of that, you know, 10 inches of moisture for us or something, you know, so that the ability to be resilient is, is one of the underlying things we're trying to build as resilient communities and resilient land base. Um, because that, that, that's how you can actually survive those. Yeah. And I think that's like one of the, you know, foundations of regenerative or holistic management. I mean, yeah. that's the whole point. So you mentioned already that Utah kind of maybe is okay or below average on, <laughs> you know, regenerative and just, I want to get your opinion on exactly what that means. You know, what's regenerative holistic management. There's so many synonyms, Yes. you know, regenerative grazing, yes. adaptive, holistic, multi-paddock systems. And as we were talking about beforehand, it's become a buzzword. So mm-hmm. I can tell you for sure it's going to get greenwashed. It already is greenwashing. Yes. Maybe after we can talk a little bit about the certifications of regenerative and things like that. But to start, what exactly do you see? as a regenerative system and why is that different from a traditional conventional system yeah so the way in my simplest form i see a scale of degenerative sustainable regenerative going from sort of a a state of taking away value or taking away productivity to sustaining productivity to then regenerating which is actually rebuilding productivity in something. We have regenerative braking in electric vehicles. You're, re- you're rebuilding energy, right? And so that that's the the kind of agnostic definition that I think of and using that word regenerative. What, what regenerative maybe doesn't capture in the idea of rebuilding something is uh, what I do love is in the word holistic is that you are, you're not, um, you're not being a reductionist. You're not saying that there's only one component that affects another component that uh, a, a reductive mindset would be that, oh, if I just add nitrogen fertilizer to this field, I will get yield. And I only think of that first order impact of that action. And that's all that matters. Um, holistic would be like, well, when I add that nitrogen to this land base, and then some of that erodes off and goes into our stream system, and then goes down into Utah Lake, and then creates an algae bloom in the middle of summer, maybe that's not a good idea anymore. And so holistic starts to look at this larger picture. And so that that's why I think there's value in using that word holistic versus regenerative sometimes. Um, I feel like it's been less um, abused. Uh, another word that, you know, that we think about is, um, actually, I don't even know what it was. Regenerative and holistic are kind of the the, the two big ones that, that I kind of jump into. You also mentioned uh, degenerative. Oh yeah, degenerative, I guess, would go into the industrial industrial world, which is that, you know, the, the way we've been running our crops for the last 80 years, especially post-World War II, where we had a, uh, an exceptional amount of uh, available nitrogen from leftover ammunitions and bombs. And we figured out how to create um, nitrogen in a lot a more effective way. And so um, that then said, hey, we have this soil base. Let's just grow things on it. And as it stops being productive, we can just top topically put a chemical on it and maintain productivity all the while it keeps degenerating the the actual health in the soil 
Joel Salatin is an interesting guy. Um, he made an observation when we were visiting his farm, we were just on one of his tours just with a bunch of other people. And he had this, like, it looked like a thought in the field. Maybe it was staged, but he said, he said, you know, when you think about it in the Midwest or wherever industrial farming is happening, he's like, it's essentially hydroponics. We have taken all health out of the soil that there's barely anything left. And we're just putting chemical water into the nutrients to feed these plants now. And I never really thought about it that way, but that's kind of where we've degenerated into is you had the healthiest, some of the healthiest soil in the world in the Midwest where the Buffalo roamed and the deer and antelope played to, to now this point where, um, it's, it's nearly a hydroponic system and just dependent on chemicals. So that, that, that's what the degenerative part would look like. Yeah, no, it reminds me of, uh, someone named Rob Wolf is like a big proponent of regenerative ag and he talks a lot about the soil composition and how it's been nutrient depleted and all these things growing crops is actually making it worse, monocropping soil. And I grew up in the Midwest, so I got to see sort of a, a lot of this firsthand as a kid growing up, seeing the wheat fields, growing them, they'd burn them, they do controlled burns, yeah. they'd grow corn on them next year and stuff like that. And it, it was really interesting, but I never thought of the soil composition and the importance of having nutrient dense soil for not only the plant life, but also the role the animals play in that soil's health. And so that's where regenerative agriculture first came into my life was learning about how they can actually create nutrient rich soil. But I think the question would be like, how do you do that on a larger scale? Mm -hmm. And sort of what are, what are the roles that we play in that and you play in that to make that a larger reality for the masses. And this is a discussion that's been going on yeah. with a lot of people, but I'd love to know your thoughts on it and sort of what, what your view on that and your future role in that is. Yeah. So I, that's, I love that, that, that conversation because, um, for me, it, it probably starts with thinking that you can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. And that's sort of frustrating. We've become very comfortable with the food system where, I can have a papaya in December and I can have a banana whenever for a ridiculously affordable price. And I justify it because I'm getting nutrients for 80 cents or whatever, you know, and we have to start maybe being more uh, mindful of our local food systems and what's actually readily available because I don't, I don't know how scalable it is in the future for me to have a nutrient rich food that's coming from the other side of the country. Um, and so I, I, for me, I've, I've kind of tried to try to assess that, but when I still go through a drive through a Burger King, that all kind of goes out the window. Like we're not perfect humans, but, um, the scalability comes with smaller productivity. I think you end up having, we've seen this problem with, we have, you know, big four, uh, meat producers, meat packing plants in the country. And so when one of those goes out for, for whatever various reasons we saw this in COVID, but otherwise, you know, they have a big, uh, food outbreak or, you know, foodborne, Ill uh, uh, I'm saying foodborne illness, but, uh, you know, some kind of bacteria or bird flu. Well, bird flu would be like a living avian thing that affects the flock, but then also just like E. coli, e. coli, in, yeah, yeah, e. coli in the, yeah. in the packaged food, like all of a sudden you're like, well, where did that food come from? We're like, well, 10% of it all came from the same factory. Like, okay, that, that doesn't feel resilient, for example, you know? And so, um, we follow, I, I think I might deviate from here a little bit, but I was talking about regenerative and holistic. There's this other version that you hear, which is soil health. 
And that's a nice outcome focus, which is like, look, we can be regenerative, we can be holistic, but the outcome we're actually focused on is healthy soil. And so when you have healthy soil, you have um, one of the principles we follow, the soil health principles is uh, diversity. And diversity, I think diversity can also tie into maybe this idea of like decentralization that if you have redundancy and diversity and different ways to accomplish the same task, then that's, that's, that's healthy. And so if you can have 10 small chicken operations versus one large chicken operation feeding a community, then when you do have an avian food or whatever other reason, something or a fire on this side of the County and not over there, you have a little more redundancy and resiliency in, in your, in your food system. So I think it's scalable, but requires more people. And, um, sometimes we, we, we are so focused on efficiency saying like, Hey, let's have one person grow a million chickens. They were like, it oh, seems pretty daunting for like a hundred thousand people to grow 10,000 chickens that might math might not add up. But the idea is the same as like, it might actually require us to step in a little more and, and produce a little more in a, in a, uh, for lack of a better word, decentralized kind of way. Yeah. And I mean, that's what we're always talking about. I think Joel Salatin, you mentioned him earlier. He, he's the one who said, if, you know, everyone had, you know, five chickens in their backyards laying eggs, um, the egg industry wouldn't exist, you know? Yeah. So how, how do we get to this point in the first place? And overall it's, you know, we just traded, you know, quality and ownership responsibility for, for convenience. Everyone flocked to cities and, you know, the, the answer of scalability and we could dive into the numbers, but it's like, you know, if there's so many people in cities and they've just gotten so disconnected with their food system, like none of this is even close to imaginable in the short term, no. we have to really reinvent the wheel and, you know, connect with the local community. And then that's why I think what you're saying is so important because yeah, right now the food system's run by these big corporations and everyone's just paying them. The money's leaving the local economy. You know, local producers are just right. struggling to get by. So I, I'm curious, you know, how do you see like breaking out of that and kind of like reconnecting this local sense of, you know, knowing where your food comes from, supporting that, and yeah. then kind of getting more people interested in, you know, maybe a small scale operation? Honestly, so for me, I, the knowing what I know now, I would have been more confident going to farmer's markets, both as a consumer and a hopeful producer in the future. And just talk to, if I had, I think I had this like psychological barrier thinking that like these ranchers and producers and gardeners, whoever they are, I, I can't talk to them or I don't know. I, I just, I just saw Like you didn't have the knowledge to talk to I didn't, them? Yeah. Or? I didn't know how to talk to them. I didn't want to bother them. It felt so like I'm a tech person at the time. I'm like, how am I going to go talk to you about your pork? Like, I don't know. But the reality is, is that these people are so passionate about what they do. And it is such a great product supporting community that I, I'm to so your question. I think you go there and say, I want to learn more about what you do. And that can be as a consumer or as a uh, aspiring producer. And you'll still get an immense amount of like education and benefit from that to be able to know how to start doing your own thing. You can probably create a mentor pretty quick. If you just go and talk to those people in the farmer's markets, you know, those are, I think they're having a comeback even in Utah, they're starting up some smaller ones. Some of them are a little more crafty in nature. And so we don't seem to sell as well there, but um, start small and start with um, a targeted community. Don't think you need a 
you know, go be one of these large operations over overnight. That's that you're going to lose your shirt um, because it it's not the most profitable business. Like I think we have stars in our eyes still that we're going to, we're going to make this work. And I quit my job probably prematurely in that fashion. I've been living on savings longer than I want to admit. Um, and my wife wants to admit trying to prove the, the viability of this model. But, but I actually really firmly believe that if you start to live within your means and better define what your means are, that you can do it. Um, we just have to step away from a lot of conveniences and luxuries. Yeah, you're bringing up so many great points, and I think I want to dive into it. It's like the value of food, you know, how much people <laughs> should be paying because you're you're inherently as a local high quality producer competing with yeah the average big conglomerate at the grocery store, you know, Walmart beef, even yeah. Whole Foods like beef. So it's it's such a challenge. And I'm curious, you know, how do you see, you know, the value in that? Because the average person just looks at sticker price. I mean, they do. We're talking nutrient per dollar <laughs> calculations that no one, nobody's doing. No one's doing. And yeah. then if you do want to get, you know, meat tested in comparison, like it's kind of a gray area that's just starting to emerge. So it, yeah. it's tough. It is. Right now, we see our our supporters and producers come from two realms. One. They love a local. We actually think in our marketing and our like any words we use, the most powerful word we use is local. And we find that is some of the greatest support we receive from people is that practices sometimes come second to just the fact that we're around the corner. Um, and when it does come to practices, um, yeah, that, you know, people, we charge $8 a pound for a whole bird of chicken. And um, I say that proudly, but I also say that like knowingly that, that that's not the most accessible for everyone. And there's a, there's a, there's an issue to be addressed there around food security, food accessibility, especially for certain populations that are more vulnerable and don't have as much nutrients available in their food system. Um, we feel fortunate that there's enough people and my, this is a bad example probably. And like not, not proven well in my head, but to me, we're just first movers in Utah. And I hope that we never have to raise our prices. I would love for us to lower our prices over time as we've identified our own business efficiencies and then have greater scalability because we just want to be more accessible. But in our operation today, we sort of need to charge that premium because of our practices. So my hope is like, yeah, like you remember the 20 inch big screen, you know, 20 years ago, that was a grand. Well, now that 20 inch is a DI. So I don't want to ever be a, a DI, like a savers or a goodwill. Uh, I don't ever want us to be that thing, but the point is, is that hopefully over time, the practices get more broadly adopted and then the price point comes down. That's, that's my hope. Yeah, no, I mean, me and Tristan have talked about, I mean, in, in a couple of shows that we're pretty optimistic about people becoming more aware of yeah. these, of these things and the importance of these things, especially since COVID in 2020, I think a lot of people are thinking about local i think they are thinking locally more than they ever have in recent history at least in my lifetime yeah. which is barely over two decades so not that long but i think you got a mustache i'm you, 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 i'm you working on it this it is out, this is there. this is three days growth <laughs> so we're getting there one day at a time i'll be up to tristan in six years there you go <laughs> it took me that long too <laughs> but but i think it all goes back to on some on some level education and the 
the lack thereof in the general population. Like yeah. growing up, I never thought about where my food was coming no. from, yeah. how it was slaughtered, how it was raised, the importance of how it's raised, the importance of dirt and like all this mm-hmm. stuff. I just, it just showed up in my fridge or it I did. went to Walmart and I got it. And I still have these conversations um, with close family of mine who talk about food prices and all these things. And I, I don't think people really understand how powerful they are when they, we say this all the time, vote where vote with your dollar. Yeah. And I don't think people know where their money goes most of the time. And I think we spend a lot of money on quote conveniences that are unnecessary or cheap dopamine hits. And we need to really reassess what's important and valued in our lives. And if you look at my uh, debit or credit history and you look at broken down where my money is being spent, food is always probably next to bills at the top, yeah. always. And that actually shocked me how much I spent on food, but I'm totally fine with that. As, but you're, I'm assuming you're choosing lo- more local. Local, high quality, high quality. Yeah. local stuff. And I'm cool with that. And I think that part of it's reassessing where we spend our money right. and what we spend it on. I feel like we, we, I think, I feel like we waste a lot of money. I feel like a lot of people are living check to check anyways, and then they get it, they feel good. And then they blow half of it on things that are pure dopamine hits or something like that. And they aren't necessarily thinking about the future. Unfortunately, I feel like humans have a history of waiting until it's really, really bad to take action. Yeah. And I feel like we do an okay job of pulling out and making it on the other end, but I'm hoping that we can maybe get there with this stuff a little bit faster than historically anecdoted. Right. When I'm curious, like the idea of we pull out is a general statement and I'm sure there's a lot of carnage along the way that a lot of groups of people probably didn't pull out. Okay. You know what I mean? I think as a, as this large society, maybe we existed as America still and had a flag still, but definitely some certain communities probably took hits along the way. But I, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. It's, uh, this is going to become the Joel Salton podcast because uh, he, he talks about, and I, I, I found his quote, but I, I haven't found his sources on this, but so I think it's an interesting idea more than I want to like, qu- I wish I had the source, but the idea is that we used to spend say, you know, 18% of our, our income on food and 9% on healthcare. And over time that is essentially flipped to 18% on healthcare and 9% on food roughly. And, that the idea generally being that, you know, we're spending more on, we're spending where food isn't seen as, isn't seen as preventative care that we're not really seeing our diet as one of the best ways to prevent medical issues. Um, and I'd, I'd love to get to that point. Yeah. I think, you know, in general, it's like the biggest problem I see, I was talking about, um, this with, uh, Jason Rick, who's in Colorado regenerative rancher as well the incentives structure is just totally broken. I mean, there's no incentive for, you know, people to switch really to regenerative or more holistic management. I mean, there is, but it's like longer term. And then it's, you know, this question of, will they even be able to command a premium? There's a lot of risk involved, but then there's no incentive for the consumer really to value it, you know, that much higher when they have, you know, they have this readily available, um, food that they've just been buying. So why not? And then, yeah, on the food health system side of things, 
there's nothing incentivizing people to be healthy. You know, there's no like reduced health insurance premiums. There, there's there's nothing really directly right. in that's built in. That's why, you know, we're paying five figures per capita in healthcare costs, which is the most of any developed nation. Hmm. And we're seeing no return on that investment at all. Like it's it's because the, under, the underlying issue is still the same. Exactly. And, you know, it's a sick care system. We know that. But it's because there's no incentive to treat like food, lifestyle habits as, you know, an input to preventing that in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm curious, you know, how do we how do we make progress there? Is there, you know, if yeah. if there is a way, um, have you thought about that kind of at a higher level? You know, I, I think there is um, as much as. We want, I'm frustrated with the system that exists and maybe that's been established through, you know, bills and legislation and other things like that, that you have to kind of fight fire with fire. And so we need to go back to these, you know, local state and federal bills and understand how to influence them to be different. And, you know, I've, we've seen some good progress where there's, there's a, there's a state bill that came out that'll, that's going to fund, um, food pantries can actually buy local food and they're stocking their pantries, not just like the, the second leftovers of grocery stores or something, which are still food that's edible. And the second leftover sound makes it sound not edible or something, but maybe it's ugly fruit or ugly food. Um, but so that to me is actually just a promising little nug. Like they're actually, I was at a meeting last night and they're like, Hey, we're, we're interested in buying your meat, your food. Like you're going to buy an $8 pound burger. Well, we're going to discount it for them. But the idea is like, oh, wow, a food pantry could actually be stocked with really good organic grocery producers that we know and then our, our pasture poultry. So there's definitely some paths there, but it, it does start with influencing. I think a really timely thing to talk about it, not, we don't have to talk in detail, I don't know enough about it, but the farm bill, I mean, five years ago, I was in a farm, farmer and the farm bill comes out every five years. And so now I'm like, oh, farm bill's a thing. It's like, $10 billion or, I mean, I, I'm saying the wrong number here, but we spend a ridiculous amount of our money, taxpayer money on farm systems and food systems. And it's only assessed every five years in terms of maybe how that's budgeted and allocated. And there's a lot of push. Kiss the ground is really trying to do a good job advocating for that, uh, that there's more regenerative practices included in, in the farm bill. So it's it's a frustrating system to work in, but I think we have to, as much as I want to just give my middle finger to it, like we, I got to keep trying to figure out the good path there. Yeah. And I think it's like, we're going, we're tying in a lot of things and the farm bill is good because yeah. it's, you know, subsidies, for example, it right? Is. Like also, there's, yeah. there's food, the cost of food is so distorted. Like it's been distorted for like 40 years yeah. and people don't realize that people are like freaking out that, you know, a dozen eggs, is like $6 a dozen. It's like, that seems reasonable. I mean, for 50 cents, you're getting six grams of protein, a lot of nutrients. I mean, this is still a low cost, high nutrient dense food. But in general, when you have, you know, high fructose corn syrup, like soybean oil, that's like produced monocrop agriculture, just rows on rows on rows, and it's subsidized to where it's guaranteed paycheck from the government, you know, you're going to get this inherently low artificial cost. So everyone's perception of food prices is totally distorted. And, you know, if we could shift some of that money to incentivizing, you know, more high quality regenerative systems, for example, 
then that could make a difference. But I don't know if that's really going to happen. I know the one thing on the table, which I'd like to hear your opinion on, is like carbon credits. And, yeah. <laughs> and uh, is that something you've looked into? Um, are you guys going to be like measuring organic matter in the soil and, and growth and that yeah. to uh, tap into some of this? Because that's right now, I think, the only thing that I'm aware of that's legitimate to yeah. some degree. Yeah. Car if I hear what you're saying, it's that the, that carbon credits can kind of act as that subsidy to, to incentivize your practices to have some sort of reward at the end of it, that on some annual, monthly, whatever basis, someone's going to pay you because your practices are sequestering carbon. We're going to offset someone else's less than ideal practices or just the reality of operating a business. So we, we're actually very involved in that exploration locally. So we operate in what's the, called the Summit County. Um, we're, we're just 20 minutes east of Park City. Park City is a very is the highest discretionary income area in the state of Utah, um, which is partly why they probably can afford our eight dollar birds more than maybe if we were trying to sell this down in another another count candid, candidly in another county we probably couldn't get the same premium. Um, so we're part of the Park City Community Foundation's um, Climate Fund, and we received a three year grant from them for seventy five thousand dollars to do soil monitoring on our ranch as well as two other ranches who are doing regenerative practices. And so they, they take soil samples, uh, across 18 different sites. And so for every site, they then sample various spots inside of that one site. So there's actually more than 18 samples, but there's 18 sites. So, uh, conservatively maybe say there's, I think eight samples per site or something. So, you know, 150 samples. And we, so we know what the organic matter is in different areas. Um, and we're monitoring uh, soil organic matter. We're m monitoring carbon respiration. We're mon monitoring different things. Um, and we like this idea. We like the idea of knowing, are our practice actually going to start sequestering more carbon? Could it validate a local, a hyper-local carbon credit market? Uh, fancy hotels like the Montage, would they, would they want to pay for this because it, they can have that premium brand associated with it? I hope so. The challenge is the carbon credit market is very, very gray in my opinion right now. Uh, it doesn't exist in Utah. It primarily exists in row crop operations. And the pri I'm speaking in generalities, not being a beneficiary of this. And so I'm sure someone will punch their radio and say, you're, you're, I'm wrong here if you had a radio. But, um, <laughs> but you know, if, if, uh, it's pretty much saying like, oh, you, you do monocrop, but in your off season, you do a cover crop. Cool. The likelihood of that cover crop actually sequestering carbon is pretty low in my opinion. And they're getting that carbon credit compensated, usually just based on the practice, but not on the science of observation and monitoring that soil. And so I think there's a lot of sketchy unintended, hopefully sketchy kind of behavior around that where it just doesn't feel founded enough. John Oliver did an amazing segment on this, just saying that like the number of companies that are claiming they'll be carbon neutral based off carbon credits by 2030 or whatever far out date, like it's like 10 X the, like there's no ability for us to, to do that. The math doesn't add up. So I like the direction. I think it's a forcing function for behavior. I think um, it's not, it's not where it needs to be. I think more important, if someone ever came to me and said, we want you to sequester our carbon, I think cool. Or like, you know, in our, we want our land to sequester carbon, but the bigger picture is ecological recovery. 
how many species of animals, of birds, of insects have you seen return to the land? What's your water infiltration rate? You know, there's so many other indicators that are equally important as carbon sequestration. I probably nerded out there a little more than... No, no, I yeah. love it. I, I kind of want to hear more, actually, because Good. I think um, I all those la especially those last two things you mentioned about like animals returning to, to their environment yeah. and stuff like that. But could you explain a little bit like why it is important to have animals grazing on the land and how cows can actually be beneficial to this system. Yeah. And I'm sure, I mean, this has been <laughs> talked about a lot, but I'd love to hear from you who firsthand are out there. Yeah. And also sort of those two other anecdotes you mentioned about fauna and animals returning mm -hmm. to the environment. Cause I don't, I don't think a lot of people know like how many animals are displaced from current monocrop agriculture and current practices. I think it, the normal person just has no idea. I mean, yeah. I know I didn't. Sure. Um, and, and guide me, you know, if, if, if we, if we kind of derail here, I'm, you know, I'm just on a crazy train. So I'll actually say first, before I tell our own observations, something that's a beautiful representation of this is that the Audubon society, the, the bird society of America and the world, I don't know how far Audubon goes, but they're in the United States, but they actually have a certification for ranchers who are regenerative ranchers. And that if you, you can become certified as a Audubon, like certified regenerative rancher, because the Audubon society has monitored that better holistic ranch practices have increased the number of birds returning back. And so it's, I remember actually when McKinley first started following the Audubon society on an Instagram account, I'm like, why are we, I had no idea. So it's a very, it's a great question. Here's our observations. Our observations are that when you have an animal on the ground, um, and the way we manage our animals. So just to step back a little bit, we move our animals every single day. We calculate how much feed our cattle need. Generally it's two and a half to three and a half percent of their weight. So then you actually measure the forage. You observe what kind of forage you have, how thick it is, tall it is, dense it is. And then you calculate roughly based on this forage matter available and the forage matter need or dry matter need. You calculate probably for us a third to a half an acre a day. I'm sharing that because when those cows have only a half an acre a day, they're not going just for the Timothy or the trit grass. Like they're going for everything. And so they become less selective. So you get a nice clean graze across the ground. Um, but then they don't come back to that ground for another 45, 75 days. Some of our areas last year only got grazed once, which wasn't enough. But what we observe is you observe a clean graze that then actually, some of those are weeds, some of quote unquote weeds, less desirable plants. So then it creates space for other more desirable plants to actually go through. Um, and when you have, when you kind of have that like diversity of, of species, you can have um, plants that grow during different times of the year. And so, so it becomes a refuge for a bird. If you had a monocrop of just one grass, it's only going to grow for a certain season and then die. Well, if you keep it green and you keep it fertile, well, then maybe that's where birds can actually nest, or maybe that's where bugs and insects can actually create more, uh, their own habitat and ecosystem. And so, uh, that's like one element of how we think about our cattle, but something magical that happens with cows that people probably don't know is that, you know, they primarily are eating the grass with their tongue. They wrap their tongue around the grass and they pull it off. That tug of the grass is an agitation. It kind of pisses them off. And then they go into like kind of a, a defense mode and they want to grow. And so mowing your lawn is not the same as grazing your lawn. 
Like that's something that I never really thought about for a couple of reasons. One thing like this gnarly, I don't know if you ever felt a cow tongue, it's like sandpaper. Um, but the idea of like cow tongue is that it's got all this biology. So a cow is tugging on this grass. It's agitating the grass. So the grass actually is going into like a survival mode and it's going to keep trying to grow. And it's got all this biology on it now. And so you think about your microbiome and what's coming off of some sal saliva it's actually going to be super beneficial to the land just to have that biology on the grass. And then also this tug to tell it to keep growing. Yeah. So the animal impact there, and then their hoofs on the ground is agitating the land a little bit, giving a little bit of tillage there, but not like dramatic tillage. And so those kind of components of the animal, obviously they're dropping manure and they're dropping their, their urea, their uh, urine. Uh, and so all of that becomes beneficial to the land when it's in a controlled manner again they do it in high density for one day and then they leave it yeah i mean i think this is like so underlooked and you know there's there may not be studies that show all these things but it's like you're just emulating nature right like natural systems yeah and biomimicry is kind of the word sometimes people use yeah and that's what it's all about right and and people like miss this point completely mm -hmm. um we're just talking about carbon credits i think I couldn't agree more with everything you just said. Like, I think the whole carbon credits, ESG, it's kind of just a bunch of BS. And, you know, we're seeing like Canada and Europe, like they're the leading front. So it's like, actually, you could probably sell carbon credits to Canadian companies, like no problem. Yeah. Because they're, they're just going off the deep end. And it's, you know, we're talking about this because it's something that you could potentially tap into if you are trying to, you know, be a regenerative producer and do the right thing. Yeah. It is nice to have money available, obviously. Yeah. And it should it should be rewarded if you are actually increasing the biodiversity and organic matter content of the soil. But yeah, biodiversity, it's like we get so oh, carbon this, emissions that. And uh, how about just life? Yeah. yeah. And that's where, uh, you know, maybe we go back to like, if you had a realization, like coming from your vegetarian, you know, <laughs> vegan background, for me, that was like such a watershed moment was like, wow, like, it's not a, just about emissions. It's just if you take a system and manage it holistically, regeneratively, like you are increasing the life in this ecosystem. So for the death of like one animal per se, which could feed an individual for, you know, six plus months, yeah. the most ethical, in my opinion, the most ethical thing you can eat is a large ruminant animal that has added biodiversity to an ecosystem because there's no diet that comes free of death, yeah. but you could still be a net positive if you're actually doing it the right way. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, the amount of nutrients you'd be getting from that animal, if it's really grazing on this biodiverse forage, the nutrient density of that animal is probably through the roof. Uh, in addition to the impact of the land, I, I hadn't thought about it that way. I don't know if I'd go chicken or a large ruminant animal. I think I'd probably go your route with the, the cow. Um, but that, I like that statement. Uh, what, what's your I mean, thought I mean, Tell like me about... you, I, I read about this too. It's like, what's one life, you know, is yeah. it, a, you know, how many chickens do you need to eat <laughs> to get to one cow? And, and yeah, that's where enough. this whole sentience yeah. thing gets, you know, murky. Do you treat all lives the same? Where's yeah. the line? I mean, what about rodents? You know, Ryan was talking about monocrop agriculture. I mean, this killing, you know, millions of, of small animals a year. Is that right. a, equivalent to, you know, what, but <laughs> yeah, well, and that vegetarian vegan diet, the, 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 
and like, look, I have a lot of friends that live in that world and I, and I respect it. I think, um, none of us are perfect. So whatever idealism we have in our life, like we're not exercising them perfectly. So I don't, I, I try to withhold judgment there. But one, one thing that's comical to me is that life is not always peaceful. I mean, you look under soil, under a microscope and you watch some, you know, protozoa or bacteria and, you know, having these, you know, eating each other. It's a very, you know, microorganism eat microorganism world underneath the soil. It's not peaceful. Um, you know, we don't see carrots eating spin, you know, eating spinach necessarily, but like the nutrients underneath the ground that are like feeding that system definitely is violent. Um, I mean, it's all about survival, right? Like at the end of the day, like yeah. biology is just built to survive and pass on DNA yeah. to the next generation. Like, I mean, hmm. yeah, you can get into the whole ethics of that. It's like a death in nature is probably going to be more cruel than a death carried out by a, you know, a producer. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's so many bad players and yeah, I respect vegans, vegetarians too. I say it all the time. Like I think their thought process, well, first off, they're taking a conscious decision for either their health the environment so let's just like you know applaud that because most people don't give a shit about anything right and you know but they're they've been misinformed and they don't realize that this is totally nuanced so it's like what you're yeah. doing is completely different from like tyson <laughs> yeah. so like we're not it might be the same food it's not even close it's it couldn't be more different actually in terms of environmental impact you know ethical impact and then nutrient density but at the end of the day it's chicken. Yeah, it is. Chicken. It's a life. May I add that it's probably chicken not washed in chlorine. Yeah, so, it's not. There no, you go, we, don't, we, don't, we don't pop it in the chlorine. We don't do that. Blow some minds <laughs> with that one. Look it up on Google. That's right. Yeah. Uh, with the 10% of a 10% of a chicken package from the USDA can be certified to have or allowed to have fecal sludge as part of the, uh, the part of the um, makeup of its, its weight. But anyway, that's a, those are some fun other conversations. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely have to we'll have to <laughs> talk about that some other time as well. But I think like all of it, I mean, not all of it, but there's like a big portion of it that I've come to the conclusion narrows down to education, yeah, and individuals' education and willingness to learn. Um, unfortunately, I think for a lot of people, people have to learn through. Uh, diversity like terrible things happen to you and adversity that's what yeah, that's adversity, adversity. Yeah. like me and tristan having our own health stuff go down and mm. having to look at getting better sourced food and realizing that oh man food could have been causing all this problem and this problem um and so i think like the uphill battle is getting twofold getting people that are already having some of those issues to look into things and not just stop at the prescription counter and end their entire journey there on one hand. And then two, get the complete normie that has almost no knowledge of any of this has somehow have interest in it, which I don't know how you crack. Yeah, that. I don't. That's a great question. I mean, that was more to the ethos. If you yeah. know, let us know in the comments. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, I don't know. I mean, like you said, you had a health scare. Um, as we get more, I mean, it's interesting. I think one thing to, to, to the normie, I mean, I, I, I was a normie, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like I, I didn't know about this until two years ago, but now that I know about it, 
my parents keep telling all their friends like any proud parent wants to do. And then when I see their friends, they're like, what are you doing? You know, like they're just like so confused. And But then they're like, whoa, I'll try some of that. And so it, it is this grassroots effort, you know, no pun intended. It's, it's, it's a soil roots effort. It's um, it's just so I think that's where the, there's the value in, in having more small producers is that they can influence their small network of people. I don't think a large PSA is going to do a great job. The no. best PSA I've seen work at scale candidly is probably when Will Harris went on to the Joe Rogan podcast, because mm-hmm. that actually dramatically increased the following that they had on white Oak pastures. And he's a fantastic um, orator an explainer of these things um, and went out to a very broad or a large audience of people. But um, those are people who are ready and willing to listen to explore and understand something. I think um, you got to have people who have, who have the open ears. Yeah. And even if you listen to that podcast, like he talks about, he's like, I don't want to ship me to California. <laughs> yeah, he's right. like, this is stupid. Yeah. And he's like, I, I could supply, you know, all of the Southeast uh, or the Southeast could buy all my meat potentially, but it's just not at that level yet. So yeah. I, I think you're right. I think it's like a web that's going to continue to sprawl out because if you think about like 10, 15 years ago, people didn't have access to a lot of these things, whether it's because social media didn't exist or, you know, direct to consumer marketing is kind of just like exploding. I mean, there was not right. of a lot, of, not a lot of people who were doing it because producers I mean, we were talking before the show. They don't want to do marketing. They don't know <laughs> no. how to do marketing. Yeah, um, it's so easy. The centralized big companies in in the meat uh, system, food system in general, they just they found this loophole where they could just be like, "Oh, hey, we'll buy all your cattle wholesale. Don't have to worry about it. Like, yeah, guaranteed. We sign a multi year contract. No sweat." And you know, the the producers just like, "Okay, you know." where else would I sell this? And yeah. then they're getting, you know, pennies on the dollar and, um, you know, their local community is being, you know, like just unaware being made unaware that something really high quality is, is just right down the road. Potentially. Yeah. I think it's a really good point to mention though. When you think about conventional agriculture ranchers, specifically in this case, trying to move to regenerative agriculture, there is going to be a hit on income especially in the short term, I guess they make that transition. And the thing they have to be willing to do is you really do have to go direct to consumer to make it work. You have to be willing to cut out some of the middle players that take some of that profit away from you. And that that's, that's overwhelming. We're very fortunate to be in a population center. That's very, uh, there's enough discretionary income and just enough population density that we can tap into it. I was at a pasture poultry conference and they're in the middle of nowhere and they have a struggle doing direct consumer because of that, you know, just the local market's too small. So there's, there's some balance to try to figure out how I think you still are going to need logistics providers, last mile logistics, and you're going to need some of the infrastructure that has exist to like globalization has allowed us to become efficient in a lot of things. Logistics being one of them doesn't, you know, let's at least take advantage of that now and just make it back down into a, a more local context. We need to figure out how that, you know, regional food system can kind of work as well. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I'm, I'm working with the bison ranch in Wyoming and it's like, yeah, there's the local market does not <laughs> exist. It, you no, know, I mean, yeah. it's just, 
there's not that many people, you know, the town's yeah. like 5,000 people. There's a couple more towns of a couple thousand people like Salt Lake's the biggest, you know, population center. Yeah. Um, but in general, it's, it's going back. It's like this hidden cost of food. A lot of it is in like this logistical world yeah. that people don't even realize and who can play in this world, you know, profitably. Yeah. big corporations they have the fleet they have the volume fedex ups i mean these are like top customers of you know freight shipping and that's how they're able to deliver it like affordably across the country across the world and that's just not scalable really at a high quality level right. and it's not decentralized and then you get you know the food security issues the grocery stores are empty because you know, 10 cargo ships are sitting outside LA, like sure. unable to dock. And people need to realize that this is not, you know, this is not how things really should be working. I mean, yeah. if you cut that all down and, you know, say you sell 100% of your meat in Salt Lake City, greater area, I mean, you're not shipping anything. Maybe you're dropping yeah. off in your car, your yeah. truck, but you're not shipping anything. That's right. And that's foundationally how it should be and then you're taking all these other inefficiencies away right and i mean that's truly like food security at yeah the, at the highest that, level that's some of the argument i know like with with cryptocurrency is that like okay maybe there's a lot of energy or a reasonable amount of energy being used for the mining of it but there's not the brick and mortar building there's not this all this other infrastructure associated with the financial system that's sometimes not thought of thought of as, as deeply and that's that's out of my pay grade to talk about, but that's my general understanding of it. I one thought on the idea of um I think one thing I've loved about being a rancher and being at farmers markets is the ability to bart to exchange value. And that's been a very interesting experience. Is that like I see a woman who's got like a big old bag of organic peaches out of Colorado. She comes to the Park City Farmers Market, she's like, I'll trade you a chicken, two bags of this for a chicken. And I'm like, really? Like, sweet. I had these legit peaches and like I can get salmon and I can get these veggies for mad snacks or whoever it is. And I'm like, and this is, you know, that, that exchange of value for value is a very, um, kind of, it's not dissonance. It's forgotten. It's forgotten. Yeah. You don't see that a lot. It's just pretty much like cash here, cash here, cash here, but cash sometimes isn't necessarily value of something you've created. I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting thing exploring and understanding it's that. funny you mentioned that because i remember we were at a farmer's market a couple of days ago and i saw tristan talking to this sauerkraut guy selling sauerkraut and he was not really bartering but he was kind of talking getting granular with him i was like man you can do that with people like we can just we can just like i'd trade you a cotton shirt for like a jar of sour that's not that specific but I, yeah. I i just it's just a thought that like never would have even occurred to me that you could do is like exchange services yeah. in a way. I think that's like an important tool for people to utilize. And I actually, one of the last questions I want to ask you, cause we're kind of rounding up over yep. an hour here is how can people like us who are not only consumers, but are online kind of getting word out there, help people like you who are producers, mm. how can we help you on a local level, but sort of a higher level too? Cause I think we're sort of like on that education level for people, Yeah, but how can we help you out? So I, I think going back to that idea of like the local regional food systems, I mean, the next time you know there's a farmer's market going on or anything related to, to local food, go to it. 
and follow every single person. If you're in, if you're engaged in social media, follow them, make a conscious effort to engage and follow what they're doing and repost what they're doing. Like to be that little compounding, um, voice for them is huge. It we've, we've, we've been exposed to a lot of other people because someone will just add our reel to a story and that, that goes a long way. So, you know, if you're in that space, that that's huge. Um, you know, otherwise I said before, like, try to get more active, find someone in your state that, that is following food in the legislative world and agriculture and get their emails. They're going to be annoying for six weeks, but just freaking read them and be annoyed for six weeks and get, see it as like a small education system to like follow the development of your bills every year, because it's, it's going to be important. And then, and then obviously, like you said, you pay with your wallet, like, you know, vote, vote with your wallet. Um, if, <clears throat> if you eat a burger out once a week, like just take the extra time and say, you know what, I'm going to spend $30 on a chicken and make meals for four or five meals instead of buying some chicken that's going to cost me $15 for meal, you know, and, and just take, take one of your meals that you think about that is convenient and, and commit yourself to making that meal yourself and saving yourself at least money and exchanging it for time. I do this with ice cream all the time with my kids. They want to go out for ice cream. I'm like, no, we're going to go to the grocery store. and I'm going to go buy some good Tillamook and we're going to crush that and get a whole lot more of it. It's not the best example of like regenerative ice cream. You got to make your own ice cream, I love, man. I know, I know, I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm working. It's, it's, I'm more incrementalism to perfection. That's what Joel said. You know, you got to, yeah, I'm not going to the ice cream shops. I'm going to big buckets, but now I need to go make my own ice cream. No, I've got to get my cow. That's a, I don't know if I can do that. Are you going to do dairy? What, yeah, what's next for oh, three, three Redmond, springs? Got Am I going to do dairy? That, no, not, no, not. At 6,500 feet elevation, I think there's better ecological context that should do dairy because we'd have to feed those cows a lot of supplement and we can't grass graze them. So no, but um, layers, egg layers is something we're very interested in doing. Sheep can be pretty easy with us because you can add a sheep to every cow you have and really not need more land. Are you, so are you going to do multi-species grazing then? Yeah, we do chickens and cows right now, but we could mm. definitely do more with sheep. So nice. we, yeah, we could. Uh, we should we should talk a, a little bit about that more because I think that's interesting. So do you run them like directly afterwards? You yeah. know, are it, they eating like what percentage of like their feed is coming from, say, you know, just insects that are naturally on the land or yeah. you know, fly or mud the, pie, larva, the, things like that. I think our pasture broilers last year probably only got 30% of their feed from the land. It was really robust clover, but it didn't have probably the healthiest um, insect base for higher protein source um, because we didn't graze the cattle ahead of it. So those cattle, okay. just for any listeners trying to understand this, you, you lead with your cattle, they leave these manure pats about three to six days later, those manure pats have a bunch of fly larvae in them that haven't hatched yet. And so then these chickens go to the larva or go to the manure and just sh shred it with their claws and they get in and they, they do a beautiful job spreading manure. And then they also get all this, you know, high protein source. So, um, we haven't done that last year. We did the timing is just was off, but we do do, we will do that this year. Um, in between then what you do is you do cattle ideally, then sheep, and then chickens 
and then you can have hogs finishing. And that's beneficial from like a parasitic load perspective as well. It is right. Yeah. The the cows and sheep don't share the same parasites. So if the sheep are first and they live in their manure and the cows are following it, they can terminate any parasites that might be in the, in the sheep manure that are, that are left behind and, and same. And so they kind of terminate each other's parasites. So you're saying you wouldn't need any additional land to add in sheep per head. Because they graze just differently different, in different parts like, of yeah, the grass. Sheep graze, graze real low, right? They're, they're a lower grazer, yeah. So you need to manage it accordingly. Maybe you need to grow up a little bit, but if you're moving, if you're doing daily moves, I mean, we haven't proven this yet, but we have 16 head of cattle right now. If we brought in 16 sheep, we wouldn't need to increase the amount of um, pa- the size of the paddock that we put them on each day. Yeah. No, that's so fascinating. And we talk about scaling regenerative agriculture, and I've written about this, and it's like there's things that like you can't even calculate or take into account. And, and one of them is for sure, like multi-species grazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I know there's been some, you know, companies or ranches that have experimented with it, but yeah. I feel like it's just kind of getting started. And another thing is, you know, just think about all the grass, you know, you're talking about how the tongue ripping it out of the ground is not the same as, as mowing it. Like think about all the grass that's just sitting on like corporate land. Yeah. Like yeah. they're just paying lawnmowers, you know, it's, it's really a waste and we could get high quality nutrition out of that land. I know white oak pasture is one of the coolest things they do. They just partnered with a solar farm yeah. and they're grazing sheep under like around the solar panels yeah. instead of like that company paying a landscaping and just think, like that and this is the mindset we need to you know scale regenerative agriculture and in reality of course it's possible it's yeah. just you need to incorporate all these modalities i mean there's guys that i know i think in the midwest or kentucky somewhere that just have like 40 goats and they just drive around people's lawns yeah bio grazing yeah bio grazing yeah. like this- so if you want to trip go follow on instagram into grazers i think what they're called they are in california and they have they have uh contracts with the whole county and so they're moving two, 3,000 goats at a time. Wow. And it's all for forest management. It's, it's uh, fire control mitigation, and it's amazing. So we started off talking about how <laughs> you don't need to buy land. Yeah. You, sh- you could lease it. You That's don't right. even need to lease land, potentially. No, you could get paid. You could just graze ruminants and get meat out of it by just, you know, being a, you know, real lawnmower <laughs> that's right you can just go do be a button mean, yeah people do it when i heard about that 10 years ago i'm like how the heck's a goat and yeah it's a different mindset and i think that's the whole point i mean i think the the idea of decentralizing also requires like decent like changing your paradigm and and that if you go all at once you're probably going to like have a mental like episode and so you kind of just got to take that one uh, like i said take that one meal and like decentralize that meal like make it local make it yours and start there and see how that feels and and go from there yeah i mean what we talk about a lot is like food is like the one thing you can actually like control and buy local really i mean like you know all the tech we're using for this podcast this mic i mean your car like your laptop can't control that there's no local like apple like no. uh, yeah maybe if you live in silicon valley yeah. and it doesn't even even yeah. it's, it's made in china so <laughs> like right. literally it doesn't exist you can't buy that many things locally and from a small business yeah we'll sell our chicken it'll just say designed in california designed <laughs> in utah produced in so, so it's, it's really i mean you're i think 
the food you buy could have the biggest difference in like your community and your economy, local economy, because yeah. it's just, you're so limited in what yeah. you can actually make a difference in. And yeah, if you try and go full, you know, anarchist, you're going to go nuts because you can't yeah. today. Not and, today. Maybe tomorrow though. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, you, you talked about cryptocurrency mining, uh -huh. value for value. Yeah. I mean, this is a motto seriously that we're preaching, you know, beef initiative preaches like, exchanging value for value mm -hmm. connecting local producers with consumers but then also educating them about bitcoin right and uh yeah i'm curious where where you stand i know cody who organizes the salt lake city bitcoin meetups yes. would be you know very upset if i didn't ask you how oh, yeah. how are you doing in your bitcoin journey and this is also my role on the show to ask oh you, man ask everyone all this. right so here's the deal so because you see, the principles are there. Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. even talking about it before I ask. So let's talk about behaviors. Um, I'm just, I'm a little apathetic to the last mile of like pulling the trigger on some things, if you will. So I have not put any money into any cryptocurrency. And when I was talking to you guys and I was talking to Cody and things were down around 18,000, I probably should have. It's gone up a little bit, but, you know, my paradigm, I, I still, my paradigm still looks at, crypto and the value of Bitcoin and the value of it as like a stock market thing. And so I'm not really seeing it necessarily as like true value. I'm seeing it as an investment. Like this is my personal journey just to be totally transparent. And so I'm kind of like, I'm not utilizing it as a transactional tool yet for, for exchanging value. Um, I would love to open up our chicken to be available to be purchased through Bitcoin through some of those services in the short term, our mind is that we would, we would want to probably liquidate it and turn it back into cash from a business solvency perspective in the short term. Um, part of that's because we have two partners and like we all have different contexts in terms of our social, our, our uh, capital needs right now and our liquidity. And so, um, but I would love, you know, I have no problem qualm supporting it, but my own uh, portfolio looks like just I'm a lurker. I'm just monitoring the market a little bit, but I have not put in more out of laziness than like concern because this same dope also happened to be able to buy the opening shares of Rivian. I was looking at that today, the Rivian shares from when they went public, whatever, a year ago, I'm down 80%. So uh, I think even someone who bought in Bitcoin at the high doing better than that right now <laughs> yeah. sorry yeah. that's a long-winded answer but that's there's my journey there it's pretty funny i'm i'm one of those people that bought bitcoin at the high there he I, is. I had put it off i i, I my friend uh, eric actually talked me talked to me for years about bitcoin like probably since 2017 kept like oh i should put money in this and this and he looks at it purely as sort of a trans like an investment yeah stake so that's the only view i've ever had of it until basically i read tristan's book yeah, and uh, link in description, but that's <laughs> that, that, that's the only preference I ever had for it until about a year ago, and then uh, his book actually opened my mind to a bunch of. It. I was like, "Well, I'm glad I got it now at least." Yeah, um, but it's just it's one of those things where sometimes I still get tripped up talking about it with people like my dad who don't understand any frame of reference around it, and they mm -hmm. even make me double double do a double take on my decisions. But I it, I, I think long term, I mean. It's, it's going to be good, I think. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's like if you have that foundational knowledge of the principles of decentralization, yeah, you know, to some degree, it's inconfiscatable money. 
you know, you own it. It's like you're responsible. Right. You see kind of the macroeconomic environment, bank insolvency. I don't know if that changed yeah. changed your mind. A lot of people start asking me about it again. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Like, yeah, this is good. But, you know, I think until you realize that it's not just an investment, yeah, you're never really going to fully get there. So, no, I agree. You know, I highly, you know, encourage you to just keep taking a deeper dive. I mean, if you have any questions, <laughs> but in reality, it's just exchanging value for value. Yeah. And, you know, Bitcoin is the most perfect digital store of value that has ever been created because it can't be altered. You know, it's digital yeah. scarcity and yet yeah. governments can ban it. And, you know, there's all these criticisms um, that I talk about, but, but in reality with a currency, a fiat currency that is, continuing to inflate in its supply and deflate in its value, you know, there's just going to be more volatility. And people always talk about Bitcoin being so volatile. I mean, everything is volatile right yeah, now. Yeah. So it's no one's asking you to just go all in, especially when you have, you know, a, a business that is like so dependent on cash flow. Right. But, you know, think about it more. And yeah, if you start opening up, you know, people to pay you in Bitcoin, which I think is a fantastic way. I've been selling bison meat and bone broth for Bitcoin and I haven't even been buying that much like outside of that. And it's like if you just save like X percentage of sales that you make in Bitcoin, for yeah. example, and then, you know, over a long period of time, it could add up. And yeah. it just goes back to the low time preference mindset, which is all around regenerative holistic management. I think it's like, yeah, you shouldn't dive into this if your time horizons next year. Yeah. Because it's not going to pay off. I mean, what's your like time horizon for when things really start turning around and in, in terms of like carrying capacity soil mm. health probably like five ish three years. to five years yeah. both yeah we need to expand our land capacity to support our livelihood and then also to be able to have like enough enterprises stacked to be able to go on top of each other yeah three to five is our target yeah so it's it's the same principle right there i mean three to five i mean if you bought bitcoin and held it for three to five years, you've pretty much never been in the red. Right. But in reality, that doesn't even matter yeah. because it's supporting the principles of, that's going against the whole centralized system that is kind of standing on one leg right now. Yeah. All right. Well, I will, I'm going to get a call or text from Cody. So he's <laughs> going to, he's going to come over and knock down my door until I actually like, buy this thing. But. No, it's fine. So it's, it's awesome to see. And I think the ranching community in general, like share a lot of these principles. I mean, they don't like big government, you know, (laughs) they understand like the issues with the system. Yeah. But so many people are kind of like on the fence to change. I mean, so many people are just like, well, why would I move to a regenerative style of Mm. management when I could just keep doing what I'm doing? So, I mean, what's your pitch to producers? to ranchers like how do you get them on board to actually changing their modality because that's you know what it really comes down to and now i'm pitching bitcoin but it's like how do you pitch that to someone in terms of management practices and uh to become more decentralized and in control yeah we our pitch is primarily the way we see the greatest impact is in two things our our thick forage like our, our, the, the productivity of our land and carrying capacity of our land. We can actually just have more cattle per acre than a conventional agriculture operation. And so that's like one, one representation of an economical like viability is just that like we can actually handle more cows on our land, more cows equal more income for that individual. Um, 
And then the, the other one is just like reduced inputs. If you have reduced inputs, then you actually have more opportunity for profit. And, you know, Gabe Brown tells his story about selling all of his heavy equipment to be able to just go all in. That was out of desperation, but the same thing can exist out of intentionality. And just that to us, we want to show resiliency in our communities. Like to your point, you brought up at the beginning, you have the largest transfer of wealth happening in the next 10 years. And so when we have a family owned land operation that's operating in the red and so that landowner dies and it goes to a, some version of an estate and discussion is how to disband it or what to do with it. Do we, do we sell it brother, sister, you know, like, or do we keep it? Well, is it a, is it a liability or is it like, an, is it actually benefiting us? And if it's break even, most of the time, these people will be at least connected to it enough. Like, well, let it keep operating and be slightly in the black. If it's in the red, they're like, well, X home developer is going to pay us a grip for it. So let's do it. And so I think one thing I will say, though, is that if you are a rancher right now, one, your average age is about 66, I think, right now. That could be based on old data, but it's in the 60s, upper 60s. And often that seems to be the only route. I either need to be profitable and have some business that my kids inherit and they're willing to run it, or I have to just sell this thing because this is my retirement plan. There's something in between which are conservation easements. And conservation easements are a really great way to be able to put your land into conservation for perpetu in perpetuity, but it can still be agriculturally used and have access to that land. It can be productive, conserved land, but that land you can sell that land to a conservation group and so you still get money, not as much as the current crazy value, but you still can get a lot of money and get some tax incentives along with it. And so anyone who who you know who has land and is going through this transfer of wealth in the next 10 years, you can still produce a liquidity event and keep that land in productive green space in, in perpetuity. And so a lot of people don't know about that. And it's a it's a really valuable space. Yeah, I know in Wyoming, if you just have a conservation easement, they'll just pay you like a one-time lump uh amount like yep. based on your acreage up front yeah but i also know it's kind of controversial because some people then you feel like they're bound to you know what they have to do and you know maybe it's their decision now but if their kids down the line and you know they're bound to this agreement potentially but yeah i, 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 I can true. see it either way i i can see the pros and cons there's a it. there's a perfectly horrible example up in park city called the swanner preserve they're doing a lot of things right there, but there hasn't been a grazing animal on it since it got established over 20 years ago. And there's not enough elk to efficiently graze it anymore because of accessibility to it. If the ruminant could get to it, it'd stay healthy, but it is overrun with a lot of undesirable plants and it's not a healthy ecosystem in some regard in some areas. And so, yeah, when you go into a, what's called like a wetland reserve conservation easement, that can be so restrictive that it actually, in my opinion, can negatively impact the environment. So are they just not allowed to graze animals or yeah, the oh, conservation okay. easement states was set up in that regard. Yeah. And some of it shouldn't be, it's a wetland. Like some of it's a wetland and like riparian, like it, it's too sensitive, but there's other parts that totally should be grazed. And so, um, you know, I, you're, you're absolutely right. If you go with the most restrictive easement saying do nothing to this land, you get the most money paid out to you for that commitment. You can take a little less money, and be willing to let other things occur to it. Or you can say, hey, there can be still three buildings on this land in the future sold, but everything else needs to be. So yeah, you, you need to just decide that like $10 million on your 800 acres is enough as opposed to getting 20 million. And 
that goes back to actually to the eighties of like productive value of land versus market value of land. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. It's, it sounds like, you know, there's, there's a spectrum there, of course, and yeah. it's context dependent, it's, but it's interesting. It's like, why is it that they pay out the most for if there's nothing? Cause we know that doing absolutely nothing is not good either. Yeah. Um, well, nothing in terms of human involvement. And human involvement, so still, like building and stuff, I get, but like, yeah. say, grazing, for example, and you're saying. Yeah, and I think, and, you know, I, we'll have conversations with them. I don't want to throw Swanner under the, you know, there's a lot of context for the, why those decisions were made and a lot of influence that I don't, we're learning more. When that easement was set up versus what we know now is different. So I want to respect the journey they're probably on right now. But I think there's some areas that don't need human involvement. And don't need us to graze it, but just nature can graze it. And that's that's sufficient. So I think there are spaces, places, mountain ranges, especially that don't need grazing on it and can be a healthy ecosystem still. And so I think it, it it's heavily dependent on context and location. And But you're right. Look, there's a lot of places where we do need to graze things now with human-owned livestock as opposed to natural roaming buffalo or other ruminants because we've just jacked up the system so much. Like the best thing we can do is try to regeneratively graze it. Ideally, we just roll back the clock 150 years and could let those Buffalo continue to roam. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And I've talked about this, you know, with, uh, you know, the, the bison ranch I'm working with in, in Lander, Wyoming, cause they have, you know, another thousand acres that are like half on a hill. And I'm like, you know, what about grazing that? He's like, then the elk would have nothing to grace. Yeah. And it's like, this is kind of the thought process that, and the deer and the animal, there's a lot and yeah. you can't really calculate this. And, you know, you know, fish and game does a decent job and that's why hunting exists. But it's like, well, what if we somehow could like restore all this public land? And uh, that's where I find the biggest challenge is just the management of these vast amounts of public <laughs> land, yeah. like the BLM grazing program. And yeah. It's it's insane because, you know, talking about scaling regenerative agriculture, you'll read articles saying there's 800 million acres of grazable land in the United States. And you just hear that and you're like, wow, that's so much land. Bloomberg wrote an article said that 800 million acres are being used for cows. And I'm like, you have no idea because you've never even driven drive from Salt Lake City to central Wyoming. And I mean, there's just that you could drive for two hours and not see anything. And then occasionally you'll see like 20 deer or you'll see 50 cow. And you realize it's because that land has been made so unproductive from like grazing habits over the 20th century. And then now no one wants to manage it. So all they do is what I call like open grazing, which they pretty much just throw out like, you know, 50, 100 cattle. Yeah. Continuous grazing. Continuous grazing. There's no management. And to me, that is the biggest issue with like utilizing land and it's all rangeland. So the forage quality is, is, is low and it's not getting a lot of precipitation, but even if you just started rotating them, it seems like a little bit, you could probably double, triple, quadruple the carrying capacity over a few years, or you then open up all this forage now for more wild ruminants. So I'm curious, have you thought about that? Like, what do you think should, should we start enforcing like (laughs) this to me, it's just like the most untapped potential in terms of land. And, you know, if anyone who's interested, look up BLM land grazing programs, you can get dirt cheap leases. The land is, you know, you might have hunt, you might need a hundred acres per head. 
Yeah, it's rough. Um, I think a great example of depleted land being healed that maybe represents in some areas of at least Utah, maybe Southern Utah, similarly, is there's a guy named Alejandro Carrillo. And he um, he's part of the understanding understanding ag group, and he's a consultant. But his own land base in the last ten years, he has quadrupled his stock carrying capacity. And this is in the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico, where they get I can't remember less than ten inches of rain a year, and they're dramatic rain events, and it's gone. And so um, he's actually coming next February to Southern Utah to St. George for the Soil Health Partnership. And they're going to go visit some ranches out there and he'll talk. And um, I just think he's a great, but he moves his cattle up to eight times a day. Wow. So you need, you need, um, need hands on. You, it's management intensive. Joel talks about this, that a, a Joel Selden says an operation should be managed. It can, should be mobile, modular and management intensive. And that management intensive is where it gets a lot of people because continuous grazing, where you set your cat out, cattle out for five months and you go collect them or it's whatever. Nothing. It's, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. They have a lot of busy days still, but it's, it's just a different management style. They probably have other jobs to keep them going. And, um, but that management intensity over time will allow you to have greater stock capacity. And so, um, uh, I, the BLM's tricky because you can't do fencing. And I understand why, like you got a lot of other animals going on in there. Um, you can manage it with ge- geofencing is pretty interesting. I know that there's a grant. Is that right like now. collars? Collars. Yeah. So you got GPS located mm-hmm. collars that I guess zap them if they go outside the bound. I don't know how you manage a freaking range cow with, with a collar, but we know someone that's going to be experimenting with this summer with a grant. Um, I think that's, that's actually pretty encouraging. So where can tech enable and empower good practices, but not necessarily be the leading force on it? I think are interesting kind of overlaps to see. So I'm I'm hopeful on some of that stuff. But with yeah, with some of that rangeland, you go hit it once in a spring flush, and then you get the hell out of there. You don't go, you don't you, you don't graze it for a year, maybe two years, because it's that sensitive. But that impact, that manure, whatever you did, it just starts the cycle, and it's going to take time. Yeah, and that's interesting. Would you, would you need for the collars to have it on every cattle? You think, or yeah, maybe that, just a few lead? I, that, I don't know. That's well, what I've always. I, been I don't thinking know because it's got to be a pretty expensive piece of you know tech and. It is. I don't know because um, the behavior of our cattle is we definitely have some leaders, um, and so those leaders set the tone for mm-hmm. who goes into the pasture first and things like that. But at the end of the day, I think you probably need it on every cow. Yeah, at least to every. Start. Yeah, maybe not the calves, but. Yeah, yeah, but that's a good point because people, I think, have a misconception. You know, you're talking about your land and like how often you're rotating and grazing certain areas. It's like when the bison used to roam the Great Plains or just wild ruminants in general, sometimes they would come through, they graze every blade of grass down, you know, all their yeah. excrements fertilizing the soil. And you're saying the ripping of the grass out, all that biology, all that disruption, all that stress, that good stress. They might not be. Go- they might be gone for five years, yep. four years. Like yep. nature has this natural balancing mechanism, and we don't understand that to the degree that I think is important. And that's where you get all this misconstrued information around, you know, how much acreage is being used to graze. But in general, like there's so much, so many strides to be made in the positive direction if we just start experimenting with things like that. Yeah. I think in the, in the rangeland pasture. Yeah. And I I think maybe my parting word on that front is that, um, and overall is that, you know, we've talked about things and information that 
that could potentially vilify individuals and producers who maybe aren't doing certain practices. I'll admit that, you know, even my first year of trying to run this regenerative ranch, I was too much of a zealot and didn't really honor respect like the historical context of some ranchers and why they do what they do. And so the last thing that this regenerative movement, this holistic movement needs is, um, is being contentious with existing producers that we ultimately need to make change as well. And so judging those people harshly, like I can just tell you that they made the best decisions, like go find a rancher that's just sitting flush with cash and building a spaceship and like, we'll, we'll have a conversation, but until then, like they're just trying to get by and they're making the best decisions they can in the system that they exist in. When some damn salesman came up to him in the forties or fifties and said, I can sell you a bunch of this nitrogen and it's going to make your land be 10 X more productive. Why wouldn't they do that? You know, that, that because they were trying to do the best thing for their family and for their land. I think if you went rolled back the clock 80 years and said, would you do that again? You know, the ranchers and farmers that I've gotten to know that have been in this business a long time. My opinion is they're some of the best citizen scientists I've ever known because they used to, and they still do the ones who do it right are observing the land and monitoring it and experimenting with it and seeing what works and what doesn't. And I think industry has kind of stripped a lot of producers from that. Here's a playbook. Here's a checkbox. Here's a step this, do this, then that. It's a flow chart of what to do. It's a system, but it's not a complex system that nature is. And I think ranchers and farmers are some of the best citizen scientists out there when they really listen to the land. It's been a, it's been a really cool experience getting to know that. Yeah, I mean, that's such a great way to encapsulate it. I think you should you should always be humble. You should respect these people. I mean, they're producing the food that yeah. is like fueling society, fueling life. So you should be extremely grateful for anyone who's producing food. It's probably the hardest job. I mean, yeah. it's all hours of the day, all days of the week. You know, there's no off days if it's raining or snowing. That just makes it more fun. And uh, yeah, they, they just uh, <laughs> they just did what they had to do to get by and keep producing food. So yeah. I always think of like, you never blame or, you know, criticize the individual. It's always like the system. It's the higher level, right? Because even like we're talking about vegans, vegetarians, it's like inherently they have a good mental aspiration it's just you know the system or the misinformation that's leading them potentially in the wrong direction so yeah always be open-minded in that regard so i mean it's easy to get caught up in this especially us just like you're now got your hands dirty but when you first dive into something you can use oh you should be doing this it's really just do regenerative or you know just you know start accepting bitcoin and all that like right okay what what have i done i've never worked on a you know a ranch like full time or yeah. have my own operation so i i think it's always important to step back and, and be respect yeah respectful of, of that so yeah that's uh i don't know if you have any thoughts there no i was just i i feel like i humbled every time we talk to somebody that knows more about the subject than i do and that's like the journey that i enjoy about doing the show is learning from you and gaining that innate wisdom that you've learned over like the amount of time you've been doing what you're doing. And I think it's valuable for everybody to understand on a very basic level where their food comes, why it's important, how we treat the land and the animals that give us this food Yeah. for, to use the worst term ever, the greater good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. Well, thank you. It's been fun to chat with you guys. Yeah. And actually I'll, I'm going to end this one out, but tell people we can find you, follow you, Buy some meat if we're local. Yes. So uh, our website is Three Springs, Utah. It's the number three springs, 
Utah. Utah ends with an H if you've never spelled Utah. <laughs> U, I'll spell it out for people. U-T-A-H. Um, there it is. Utah. <laughs> Utah. But uh, Three Springs, Utah, that's also our Instagram handle. We're most active there, just showing what we're doing on the land. If you want to see, DM us. If you have questions, we always like to engage and talk. Our chicken will be available beginning of July. We'll sell at the Park City Farmer's Market. We have drop-offs in the Salt Lake area and Park City area. We can't ship across state lines right now because we we do we don't even do state inspection. We're we're exempt from a lot of um, inspection because of the amount we do. So the government can't tell us what to do. Well, they do. They just tell us what we can't can't do. I guess anyway. But yeah, that's how you can find us is uh, Three Springs, Utah. Well, thank you, Mitch. It's been real. We'll do it again. Thanks, Jens. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Mitch. Appreciate it.